Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for coming to the second annual Texas Tribune Festival. I'm Brandy Grissom, um, the managing editor at the Texas Tribune, and I also cover criminal justice issues. So this morning, we are all here for the great debate about prosecutorial misconduct. And we've got some experts here to um, really help us move the fo conversation forward um, about prosecutorial misconduct, how big the problem is, what can be done about it, what causes it, those kinds of things. Um, really, prosecutorial misconduct has become a larger issue here in Texas, in the, particularly in the wake of the Michael Morton case. Um, and so today we wanted to bring together the folks who really understand in the process intimately, who can talk with us about why these mistakes might occur and what are the best ways to deal with them afterward, or hopefully before they even get to that point. So let me introduce to you today our, our wonderful panelists who have agreed to be here with us today. Um, first off, we have Anthony Graves. He was incarcerated for almost two decades, most of that time on death row, um, for the murders of a, a family in Brenham, or in Somerville, in 1994. Um, Anthony was acquitted just a year ago, um, and in his case, what we found out afterward was that the prosecutor was aware that the... Um, the man who was allegedly his partner in the crime had actually said that Anthony was not involved and the prosecutor didn't reveal that information until much later. <laughs> um, so much later. Anthony's been free since October of 2010 and today he's a community advocate as well as a consultant and, and a speaker. Uh, next to me we have Patricia Likas. She is the Harris County District Attorney, the first uh, female Harris County District Attorney. Um, and. In, uh, in her position, she has uh, launched an elite cold crime unit where they've arrested more than 100 fugitives. She's also initiated um, a post-conviction review unit in Harris County to help um, uncover cases of wrongful conviction. Next to me on my other side, we have uh, District Attorney William Lee Hahn from Polk County. Um, he's held that position since January of 2007. Um, before that, he was a felony uh, division chief since 1996, and he's prosecuted hundreds of felony cases as well. Um, and uh, Mr. Hahn is also on the Texas District and County Attorneys Association's Legislative Committee, so he brings a wealth of uh, knowledge and experience to the table as well. And on the end, we have uh, Dallas County District Attorney Craig Watkins, who has um, generated a lot of news coverage for some of his um, work in terms of his prosecution. Uh, post-conviction review unit there in Dallas County, um, where we have seen the most uh, wrongful convictions discovered, the most exonerations in Texas have come from Dallas County, in large part due to his office's work. So I really, um, we're going to have a 60-minute discussion. We'll have about 40, 45 minutes of discussion up here, and then we'll open it up to audience questions. If you could re reserve any questions till that end, end piece, we'd really appreciate it. And we'll just get started right here talking about um, some of these issues regarding prosecutorial misconduct. And I, I think really an important place for us to start is to define what prosecutorial misconduct is. Because we hear about everything from Brady violations, withholding evidence, to even making sort of a wrong statement during closing or opening arguments. What, what constitutes misconduct? constitutes misconduct and, you know, at, at what point does it rise to a level where it goes beyond making mistakes? So, do you want to start with that? Lincoln? Sure. Uh, and in that connection, 
Uh, I would point out that in 2010, the American Bar Association uh, House of Delegates passed a resolution cautioning courts on uh, how to distinguish instances of true prosecutor misconduct versus what is typically considered to be ordinary trial error, prosecutor error. There is, a, I would suggest, a distinction there. In um, 2011, December of last year, uh, the Texas District and County Attorneys Association formed a committee to begin an investigation into the problem of wrongful convictions in Texas and to what extent <coughs> prosecutor misconduct, uh, if any, contributed to wrongful convictions. And one of the things we wanted to do was to follow up on that resolution passed by the ABA and try to come up with a definition of what prosecutor misconduct is, understanding that that term is used very loosely in the media and even in judicial opinions that address that issue. So the definition uh, we came up with in the context of wrongful convictions was that prosecutor misconduct occurs when prosecutors deliberately engage in dishonest or fraudulent conduct uh, with the intent to produce an unjust result in a case. So that was our starting point, uh, our effort to define the problem. I understand there may be differences of opinion and, and different views of how best to define that, but that was what we thought best identified uh, the responsibility of prosecutors uh, in regard to misconduct. So we've heard a lot about about prosecutor error and, and how many cases in which it's occurred and there have been sort of competing reports about whether the problem is rampant or whether it's rare um, and how often prosecutors engage in this sort of, I guess, underhanded behavior, for lack of a better word. Um, Craig Watkins, I'd like to know from you, how often do you think these kinds of behaviors occur, these kinds of misconduct happen? and if it happens, does it matter how often it happens? You know, it's um, <clears throat> somewhat difficult to put a percentage or number on it. Um, and um, I think um, that as we move forward on this issue, and it's a hot-button topic issue, it's politically sensitive, and it may be popular uh, for a person that's uh, sitting in uh, my seat as an elected DA to take a, a position that goes with... Uh, um, the line of thought that um, um, we need to um, address it from the standpoint of uh, making the discipline stricter for prosecutors. Now, I look at this uh, from the standpoint of before I became DA and uh, the political pressure uh, that elected DAs had uh, to endure to make sure that they appeared to be tough on crime and uh, convicted pretty much everyone that came through the door. And so the, the question that I find myself struggling with is that do I make that same mistake? Um, that, that mistake that we made um, when it was politically popular to be tough on crime uh, uh, gave Texas this reputation of um, throwing the whole idea of seeking justice out of the window and we have all these exonerations. Um, I don't want uh, the pendulum to swing all the way over to the other side where uh, we are in a position to advocate uh, for a person's innocence when they're not. And so the difficulty as I see it is to find a median ground as to how we're going to address this problem from a reasonable standpoint and take the politics out of it, have an honest conversation about the issues that we deal with in our criminal justice system and get 
to the meat of the problem and solve it. Obviously, there's um, issues of prosecutorial misconduct. I've seen it, um, and I'll be honest about it. Although I am a prosecutor, I'll be honest, I've seen it. And unfortunately, it happens uh, in instances where it shouldn't. Um, I feel that we should be held uh, to a very different standard than a defense attorney. Their job is to um, defend their client. You know, ethics out the window for a defense attorney, but for a prosecutor, when we are talking about taking a person's freedom, and here in the state of Texas, uh, we um, apply the ultimate punishment. And so we should be very careful uh, in how we dispense justice to make sure that when we are seeking justice, when we are seeking to take a person's freedom, and in some cases their lives, uh, that we are above reproach. And we see it in Dallas County, and I'm sure other DAs are seeing it, and I think um, the last election cycle is evidence of it, uh, that people want justice in Texas. And uh, we have an opportunity here uh, to, to, uh, to define what it means to be a prosecutor for this country. Um, and I think we should take full advantage of it as prosecutors. Uh, and uh, the line of thought is that if we don't address this problem, uh, which it is, um, then someone else will. And so we should put ourselves in a position because we're on the front line. We know uh, how cases are investigated. We know that when a prosecutor gets the case, it's the end of the road. We don't know um, if there's a police file that may have exculpatory evidence in it or Brady evidence, uh, and we may not ever get it. We don't know. Um, we have to rely on um, 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 the forensic scientist to basically give us the evidence that we need to pursue a case. And so when we get the case, it's the end of the road. And so all the impetus at this point is on prosecutors and their misconduct, but I think it's a systemic problem that should, uh, that should be weighed out throughout the whole system as opposed to putting the emphasis just on a prosecutor uh, when they are put in a position to pursue uh, a prosecution of a citizen of this state. Judge Likas, that I think leads to a really good question on a topic that you and I were talking about earlier, is preventing these kinds of situations from happening in the first place. So from your experience, what have you seen are sort of the causes for some of these cases of prosecutorial error or misconduct, and, and what do you do to prevent those? Well, I think it's important to distinguish error from misconduct. And the fact that the courts find that there is error is actually a healthy sign. Uh, and let me give you a little background. I worked my way through undergraduate school and law school as a Houston police officer, and then I was a defense attorney, and then a judge, and now DA. Uh, I can't figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. <laughs> okay. It all starts with your fundamental understanding, what is the role of government? And that is to protect, to maintain order domestically, and to defend our borders. The rule of law is the foundation of a decent, robust society. Justice and order are inextricably intertwined. And when you have that is your philosophy that 
honor and dealing fairly with all is everything. And you always strive to do the right thing and to do things right. So when you have that as a basis, then what you do as a prosecutor is you have your operations manual. And I would prefer to focus on prosecutorial conduct as opposed to misconduct. And when you lay out what your drill is, and that's enforced, and it's followed, then it repels misconduct. 95% of all the cases prosecuted in the United States are prosecuted in state, county, and city courts. And yet when you look at the egregious cases of misconduct, so many of them come from the federal level. Uh, everyone here is familiar with Senator Ted Stevens in Alaska and how they deliberately suppressed evidence there. Uh, some of the other cases that uh, we researched were uh, United States versus Kojanin and uh, made misleading statements to the court. They had expressed misconduct in the court and there was no contrition. And we could, uh, there are several here. Of course, everyone knows about that whack job, Nifong. And then that, that hideous case in New Orleans where they suppressed the uh, blood evidence and concealed that. In my jurisdiction, we have an open file policy. And it's not like the old days where you, as a defense attorney you come in and you can look at the file and make notes. We make copies of the offense report. And we give them to... And you know what that does? First of all, the prosecutor becomes familiar with the case. And let's take a step backwards. What we do is we have an intake division, so we screen the cases before we even accept charges. And then there's a 24-hour hearing where you, there's probable cause is determined. And then the prosecutor gets the offense report and the first date in court, which is uh, within 24 to 36 hours, then the offense report is there, the prosecutor is familiar with the case, and the defense has it. Within our file is an agreement in fact, I brought copies of it that I'll give to you and you can put it online or whatever. So when you follow the drill, then you do everything right. You know what's so amazing, and I think you pointed this out, is that half the defense attorneys never even take the offense report. So so much of what transpires is just bad lawyering. But see, as prosecutors, we're the guardian of our republic. And so you have to adhere uh, to the highest standards. In my jurisdiction, to give you an example, oh, one other thing, I hate to do statistics, <clears throat> but according to the NDAA, 10 million cases a year, serious cases, are prosecuted, and of those, one, one-tenth of a thousand has involved prosecutorial misconduct on the state and county and city level. We're not talking about the, the federal level. So what else do you do besides setting these standards? We work closely with law enforcement in their continuing education. We have brought officers to uh, teach who were involved in cases where the defendant was later exonerated. I'm pleased to tell you that we've exonerated five individuals. Misconduct was not present in any of those cases. It was faulty eyewitness identification. In one case, it was just everybody was incompetent, whether it was law enforcement, the prosecution, or the defense attorney. But there was nothing evil or sinister about it. Uh, years and years ago, the Supreme Court 
defined prosecutorial misconduct is striking foul blows. I like that archaic language, don't you? You can strike hard ones, legitimate ones, but no foul blows. So in addition, you have your standards, you follow them, you educate uh, with respect to uh, law enforcement, and of course, science and technology and forensics. Uh, I'm pleased to tell you in Harris County, we're building a nine-story Institute of Forensic Sciences. Uh, our DNA lab is the best in the world. We even do genome research there. It's in a medical center. Houston has the best medical center in the world. We are the third largest county in the United States. Chamber of Commerce is going to take me out for dinner later. Uh, we have uh, 34 municipalities in Harris County, the largest of which is the city of Houston. Our unincorporated area, its population rivals that of San Antonio. We are a global economic center that attracts the best and the brightest and the worst of all the predators, okay? We're the most diverse county in the United States. In the last three years, we had over 133,000 felonies, almost double that in misdemeanors filed. How do you handle that with less than 300 prosecutors? No one ever talks about resources. You know, the public defender quits taking cases when they have X number. We can't do drive-by in a criminal justice system. Society has failed in so many aspects. Mental health, the only institution dealing with mental health is a criminal justice system. My role is to protect, we're sword and shield to protect the people of our county, of our state, of our nation. And yet, we go over and above that. It's our role to protect the rights of someone when they're under investigation, when they're charged with the offense, during the trial and post-conviction, while we vigorously prosecute those who are offenders. You have to be proactive. I caution you all. Prosecutorial misconduct now is the issue du jour. But let us distinguish again between error and misconduct. The appellate courts come up with decisions and they actually reverse themselves over and over again. As a judge, I can remember on search and seizure law, they had magic words that had to be in search warrants, okay? It was like the form pleadings back in medieval England. My posture was, what is so compelling about that affidavit that authorizes the invasion of someone's home or their business? And I was reversed over and over again. Was that misconduct by me? And then all of a sudden the Supreme, um, excuse me, the United States Supreme Court came out with Gates v. Illinois, and every one of my cases then came back and was affirmed. There is honest disagreement about the law. That does not mean that there is misconduct. So we have to distinguish between, I'm sorry to take so much time. Well, <laughs> super, uh, extremely important points, and I think we should go a little farther with, especially the difference between error and, and misconduct. Is at some point, I think, and I, I wanted Anthony to weigh on, in on this, whether it's done intentionally or unintentionally, when a mistake is made, there are consequences. And um, so the consequences for a wrongful conviction could be very, very dire. So from your perspective, I want to understand what 
if it matters to you if there's a distinction between error or whether it's intentional or unintentional and you know if there should be a difference in the level of accountability for prosecutors based on whether they intended to make a mistake or didn't how much time do I have (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well I'll just say this here between the distinctions error misconduct go ask my children they grew up without their father whether it was an error or misconduct They'll never get that 18 and a half years back. Right. So I think it should be consequences either when there's error, that means that you're not competent enough to represent society. So therefore, I don't think you should be in that position. And when there's intentional, I think you should be prosecuted because you're a criminal now. You know, I think that should be accountability simply because sometimes we have to protect ourselves from ourselves. You know, and I always say, I always liken the... the uh, Quote by uh, uh, our president, Abraham Lincoln, about power, how it corrupts. And now absolute power corrupts absolutely. You have to have safeguards in place sometimes to protect people from themselves. You know, Sometimes they don't even know they're going down that road because they get short-sighted. They think they're doing the right thing. They got a lot of pressure on them to solve a case. I mean, it comes from the top to the bottom, from the commissioner, I mean, to the voters who voted you in to solve cases. So you got to appease them people in order to keep your job. So I think I think a lot of our problem is we got an election process on the local on the local level that is corrupting our system. You know, I, I truly believe that. And as far as whether it makes a difference if it's an error or intentional conduct, well, you know, state of Texas tried to murder me twice for a case I didn't commit. It didn't make a difference. So I, I think that. The, problem, the fact is, we know that there's a problem. How great it is, you know, that's up to debate. But there's a problem. So what's the solution? We've all talked about the problem. What is the solution? Let's move there. Because we've addressed the issue of the problem. Where's the solution? Where's it going to come from? What is going to happen when another prosecutor uh, uh, intentionally uh, uh, prosecutes someone for a crime they know he didn't commit? What is the solution to that? I haven't heard that yet. I've, almost, I've only heard numbers and, and how it's an error or it's a misconduct. We don't know, but that should be more training. But what happens when he intentionally does commit misconduct? You know, where's the consequences? And if there's no consequences, it's not going to stop. Because, I mean, here's a human element to it all. Is that we all don't always practice what we preach. All right? You got guidelines to say that if the system, oh, the system is right, because look at the guidelines. But if that man's moral character is not in order, he's not practicing those guidelines. What happened to him when he's intentionally going after people that he knows is innocent? That's no solution yet, and I like to see that. Well, that's a good place maybe to turn to you guys to ask for what you think some of those solutions might be. What sort of accountability measures ought to be in place when we do, if and when we do find out that there were intentional errors made. I'd like to respond to the question this way. And first of all, I think it's important that people like Anthony Graves and Michael Morton are part of this discussion uh, for the reason that they put a very real and human face on the potential consequences of law enforcement and prosecutors not doing their jobs according to the law doing them meticulously, being careful about what we do. There are major, uh, potentially devastating consequences to us not doing our job correctly. 
Uh, with that said, when we approached this uh, uh, problem as an association uh, over the last year in looking at different ways that prosecutors uh, can and should be held accountable for their conduct, there are procedures in place currently where prosecutors are being held accountable. Uh, one of those through, is through the Bar Association, the grievance process. Now, one of the problems we ran into with the State Bar of Texas was being able to get accurate data uh, from them on the extent uh, to which prosecutors are being grieved against and sanctioned. Uh, their records are not archived in such a way where those grievances and uh, disciplinary sanctions are distinguished between prosecutors and, and lawyers in private practice, defense attorneys, and so on. So one thing we would like to see as an association is greater transparency at the bar level so we can know what types of allegations are being made against prosecutors, how prevalent are they, and what remedial uh, or sanction-type responses are being administered by the bar. When we investigated, all we could find were anecdotal uh, instances where prosecutors have in fact been sanctioned for improper conduct but again that's mainly through word of mouth that didn't come to us through the bar uh, there are certainly criminal offenses that can come into play in regard to holding prosecutors accountable each of us up here have a statutory duty not just an ethical duty pursuant to the the rules of ethics but there is a statutory duty in the code of criminal procedure that says we are not to secret uh, exculpatory evidence or witnesses that are capable of establishing the innocence of the accused. If we violate that statutory provision, we can be criminally prosecuted for official misconduct. Um, Is, and, so, and so that's another remedy that's there. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is there's a statute of limitations of four years on, on that particular measure, though, and by the very nature of Brady violations, those things typically aren't discovered until long after that statute of, has expired. So what sort of realistic co consequence is there if that one doesn't work? I think that's a discussion that's going to have to take place. I think you'll probably find that there is some room for agreement as to the adjustment of statutes of limitations for the very reason that, that y'all just addressed. Uh, with that said, you have to keep in mind that there is a reason for having a statute of limitations applicable to any type of improper conduct. Almost every penal offense in the penal code has a statute of limitations. There becomes a point in time where it is impossible for the accused to defend himself or herself from an allegation just because of the, the mere passage of time. So you're going to have to find some uh, middle of ground that takes that in, into account. So, you know, I don't have the answer to that question right now, but I think that's something that you're going to find needs to be discussed, and there probably can be some agreement along those lines. Mr. Watkins, you've talked before about there needing to be more sort of um, accountability measures in place for prosecutors. I'd like you to talk about what you think is an appropriate sort of remedy when these situations occur. Yeah, I think that um, we need to go uh, down the, the historical path and look at history as it relates to this country and the state uh, when we pursue prosecutions. And I guess I'm uniquely situated um, because of who I am to have a very different perspective on on this issue. We can go all the way back to uh, you know Batson v. Kentucky uh, when the Supreme Court said you couldn't exclude certain individuals uh, to serve on. On, on a jury in Dallas County, there was a Spalling memo that said uh, that um, you, um, you know, you're trained on how you pick jurors so you can win. You don't pick people of color or people overweight. Um, 
certain people. And so the issue that I think, you know, I mean, I'm in the truth business, and uh, I have to answer to those 12 folks that sit in the box uh, on a daily basis to convince them that when we ask to take a person's freedom that they believe in what we're doing. And so I think we need to be, you know, a little bit more honest about this process um, so we can get to the truth. Um, and we can talk about, um, you know, all the meetings that we have and uh, the roads that we're trying to go down. But at the end of the day, the question that was out there was what we're going to do. Um, and I think you, we're, we're uniquely situated to do something about this. And if you have a historical perspective on the law uh, in this state, then, and if you are, if you are um, lucky enough to be in a position that we're in, that I would, I would hope uh, that uh, we would find uh, the, the moral fortitude and the backbone uh, to continue this discussion and to adequately put restraints in place to make sure that this never happens again. You know, truth, be, to be truthful, we can't prevent it from happening, but we can um, uh, put restraints in place to make sure that when it does happen, we're in a position to pursue uh, cases against those individuals that, uh, that intentionally uh, make these mistakes. You're right, there's a four-year statute of limitations, and reality is, is all the cases that we've exonerated, 34 in Dallas County uh, over the last few years, tells me uh, that that's just a drop in the bucket. Uh, there are still people uh, that don't have DNA. Uh, that um, um, the you know we were just talking about the shaking baby syndrome and the flawed science with that, and the folks that were prosecuted under those guidelines. We're just talking to the um, um, new, um, I guess the guy that's over um, arsons in Texas and the flawed science behind that. Um, that convicted individuals. And so, with all of that, and here we are sitting, and we are, we've been entrusted by the citizens of our counties uh, to seek the truth. Uh, I think it's incumbent upon us uh, to get past the, um, well, just to do the right thing. Um, and um, there, there are remedies that we can put in place, and I think it comes down even to the culture of the office. When you had a, a culture of training individuals a certain way, and then the Supreme Court comes down and says, well, it's wrong, just because the Supreme Court said it was wrong doesn't mean it's going to change overnight. Um, and so we've been dealing with this for years. Um, we have an opportunity to fix it, and so let's just go on down the road and fix it and be honest with the, the public and ourselves to get to that point. I think legislators are have really been talking about wanting some solutions that, that they can help to implement, whether it's changing the, the statute of limitations, whether it's requiring open file policies that make both sides exchange information or some other remedy. And what I wonder from all of you what you would tell legislators who are looking for some sort of solution, some sort of way to address this problem, how what kind of laws would be helpful to prevent this from happening and to hold people accountable when it does? More money. <laughs> Seriously, I say that uh, in all seriousness. It sounds flippant, but um, there was a study that came out of Florida just this last year. Their Innocence Commission 
uh, described the number one factor that contributed to wrongful convictions in that state is inadequate uh, criminal justice funding. And I'm not just talking about for DA's offices at this point in time, although that is part of the, uh, part of the problem. Uh, inadequate funding for indigent defense, for example, is a major contributor to, to unjust results. Uh, we're battling right now in regard to lack of resources for uh, forensic testing, DNA testing. The DPS labs are extremely overworked, uh, understaffed, and underfunded to do the DNA testing that we need to have done. And so consequently, I think personally, if improvements are made in these areas and, and all sides of the system have to work efficiently in conjunction with each other in order for justice to be obtained. If the courts aren't doing their job, if the criminal defense lawyers aren't doing their job, if law enforcement's not doing its part, and if prosecution is not doing its job correctly, any problem in that system can, can lead to an unjust result. So I think, kind of like Craig alluded to earlier, it's a more of a systemic type of uh, approach that needs to be obtained, I think, in order to increase our effectiveness and reduce the likelihood of having bad outcomes, such as what happened in, in Mr. Graves' case here. I think funding, yeah, it's a big issue. You know, we, uh, at the Dallas County DA's office, we get an email every day on jail population. And so the push from our uh, funding source, the commissioner's court, is, well, this is a big expense for us to have a person in jail this many days. So, Mr. DA, you're, you control the cases and how they are moved, and you need to move these cases. And so we're put in a position to go make plea offers. And then the other side of it is it's not just that we're, we're um, you know, making an offer to someone that may be innocent and they'll accept it because they don't want the consequences of going to trial. It's also the other side of it is that a person that may need to be punished harshly um, and spend a lot of time in jail, um, then we're put in a position to let that person back out on, on, on the street. And so it's kind of a double-edged sword. And um, when we are, we have to answer the public to make sure that they're safe. And then we have um, the, the funding source that's pushing the envelope and asking us to do things um, to um, save money for the county. And I, I you know, my position in, uh, has been widely publicized that I've had issues with um, the funding source in Dallas County and, and fought the way that they thought about the, the uh, criminal justice system. You know, I, I you know, selfishly believe that that's the number one issue for all individuals, public safety in at least Dallas County, I would imagine the state of Texas, and that, that should be a priority. Um, unfortunately, sometimes it gets pushed uh, on the back burner and it's not. Sometimes it gets messy when legislators get involved and they don't always make things better, right? So I mean, how, do you, how do you think they can in this case? Is open policy making both sides exchange their open files a good solution? They have that in Florida and of course the defense doesn't disclose. And there's really not much in the way of sanctions uh, that you can do when you're talking about someone's life and their, and their liberty. But certainly, uh, there ought to be a, at least a bright line there saying that there ought to be total disclosure. It goes back to leadership. We live in the greatest state and the greatest country that the world has ever seen, bar none. And to be a guardian of our republic and get paid for it, you know, you've always got to be out there doing the right thing. And you've got to work with law enforcement. It starts with, with well, first of all, we don't have time to talk about crime prevention measures, but we can talk about crime scene investigation. 
And it starts there, that where the officers do their job. And they preserve that scene, and they collect that evidence. And then you have the, the uh, forensics, in that you have the very best uh, institute in the world uh, doing the analysis and so forth. And you have this total disclosure. But again, it goes back to resources, and I think I said that earlier. How do you get the job done? With 300 prosecutors and 133,000 felonies? And we're not even talking about the misdemeanors? But there are process changes that we can engage in. Previously, our office was prosecuting people with crack pipes that had residue as state jail felonies. Do you know how long they stayed in jail till they finally pled to a county court uh, or to uh, jail time under 1244A? And so I said, unless it can be tested twice, we're not accepting the cases. Our jail population dropped dramatically. I didn't do it to drop the jail population. You know, you've heard of unintended consequences. Well, sometimes they're good. There is serendipity there. When you do the right thing, it's due process. If you can't test it twice, you don't accept the charges. And so now we don't have an overcrowded jail. We don't have an overcrowded docket. And we can go after the capital murderers and the sexual assaults and the aggravated robberies and so forth. Again, you need to look at your filing. You need to look at science. You need to look at your technology. How do you get the information there? The, do you know that HPD was using uh, VHS tapes? I guess they could have been using Betamax. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, we gave them out of our forfeiture funds, and it's great because the criminals paid for it. Now we're getting stuff uh, on a digital basis. So, I mean, and we've got a nine-year-old telling us how to do it because none of the grown-ups know. <laughs> Anthony, what do you think, what would you like to see happen to the prosecutor who worked your case? I mean, we've heard Michael Morton say that he doesn't want revenge, but maybe he'd like to not see for that prosecutor practicing anymore? I, mean, well, I, I like to see that prosecutor up here talking about prosecutorial misconduct. That's what I like to see. Because then that means that he, got, he gets it. That he took a man's life and you know, took his freedom and tried to kill him for something that he didn't do. I like to see him change be, based on that and be up here talking about prosecutorial misconduct because he can tell you. you know, that's what I like to see out here. And to me, that would be his apology. It's to acknowledge what he did and to come up here and talk to people about how he did that and what it led to. Because I think he would be the one to tell us the best way of how to restrain prosecutors from doing these type of things. So that's what I would want him to do. But I don't think that's going to happen. Right? <laughs> yeah, but as far as me, I, I just think it should be more transparency on both sides. Because we're truth-seeking. So why are we suppressing things that can shed light? We're truth-seeking, so I think there should be more transparency. You know, uh, I, I don't think there should be a line drawn, the prosecutor, the defense. If everybody's uh, truth-seeking, why are we drawing lines? We're supposed to get to the truth, you know, and then let justice prevail. But we're drawing lines in the sand. You're on this side, I'm on this side, and we're both trying to win. Where does the truth come in at? You know, that's a big problem in our system, is we have drew, drew a line in the sand. You know, we're not playing on the same team anymore. And the one team that we should all be playing on is justice. That's what we all go in that courtroom for, seeking justice on both sides. Not victory, but victory has replaced justice. And as a result, men like me are losing our freedom and sometimes our lives. So it definitely has to be more transparency. And we have to get back to what is really justice. 
It's not winning. It's seeking the truth. And that's got lost. And all our politics and all the rhetoric that we talk about in regards to our problems, nobody's talking about justice. Just think about it. Nobody's talking about justice anymore. It's not even in the conversation. Your question was, do we, how, how do we legislate this problem away? I, I think that's going to be very difficult. I think that, you know, prosecutors have a wide discretion. And as it relates to open file policy, obviously we do that in Dallas County. And I think the, the electoral process will determine that. Um, and, you know, as mentioned before, if you look at um, the, the most recent um, and elections, and um, a lot of folks want to paint this issue as being a liberal standpoint when in actuality it has nothing to do with being liberal or conservative and when you look at Williamson County for example and the DA there who was you know somewhat responsible for the Morgan case and he's no longer the DA and it was in the Republican primary um, and so um, I think uh, that um, when the issues brought to light the public will make the determination on what they want um, and more times than not I think <coughs> they make the right decision can I, can I follow up on what Craig and Anthony talked about in regard to this discovery uh, discussion? Uh, for 16 years, I've worked in a DA's office that had an open file policy. Uh, when I became elected in 2007, we, we tweaked that policy so that now defense attorneys can actually come into our office and make copies of our files and take them out of the office. So we try as much as we can be to be very uh, transparent. I'm not afraid of that discussion at all because I don't think that's going to change how, how we operate. Uh, one thing Mr. Graves commented on that I think is, is very pertinent is the issue of mutual discovery. And in over 40 states and in the federal system, there is some some uh, type of mutual discovery in the prosecution of criminal cases. Now, of course, you have to balance that against the rights of the defendant, the attorney-client privilege, the Fifth Amendment, and so on. But there have been instances, I know, where had the prosecutor known of a potential alibi that was being asserted or a claim of self-defense, that might enable the prosecutor to better recognize Brady material within their own file and, and be in a position to disclose that rather than finding out about it at the time of trial. So I think there is some, uh, there are some good reasons to really seriously look at some type of limited mutual discovery here in the state of Texas. The other thing that we found in our committee investigation that, uh, that an open file will not solve is what happens in instances where law enforcement doesn't turn over Brady uh, material to the prosecution. And we found out that in the uh, core law enforcement training that TCLOSE requires for peace officers in the state of Texas, there's no Brady uh, component to that training. That's something that I think uh, really needs to be addressed perhaps legislatively to require that our peace officers be trained on what to look for and what their obligation is if they find uh, there to be some type of exculpatory or impeaching type of information during the course of the investigation and to make sure that is turned over to the DA because you can, you can have an open file all day long, but if the information is not in there, it's not going to help. So another potential uh, discussion to happen at the ledge. Yes. There will be many of those discussions at the ledge, I'm quite sure. So I'd, we'd like to open up the discussion to you in the audience. If you have any questions, um, please keep them brief and make them questions, and we will try to answer them. Well, the question is, uh, what is the definition of liberty and the definition of justice, uh, according to the, uh, the panel? I agree with uh, Pat Lykos that it begins with uh, understanding the role of government
Um, but uh, our Constitution says the role of government is to preserve liberty and establish justice. And uh, I was educated in the North. I learned in high school that liberty was the right of the individual to have law protect the individual from the government. And justice was doing what was right. And I come to Texas, and there seems to be a different definition of liberty or different ideas. The role of government is to protect, even if that means we become like the Soviet Union, where you had the most protected population ever in history, but it was a virtual prison for hundreds of millions of people. And um, so what is the definition of liberty in your mind, your idea? What is the definition of justice? And why also should prosecutors not be held accountable to the law? Prosecutor misconduct is simple. It's when a prosecutor violates the law, violates their rules of professional conduct by the state bar, but we don't see any of that. And we, we, I was a licensed real estate broker. I cannot say, well, I did not intend to violate the laws governing professional conduct of real estate agents, or I did not deliberately, or, you know, I, I acted in good faith. No, if I violated the law as a professional, I was guilty, period. It wasn't a matter of intent. You have a duty, do you not, as a prosecutor, to know the law? So, Judge Likas, would you like to take that question? No. <laughs> 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 I guess we could get at the question of, you know, does intent or matter? What's the rule of law? You all are familiar with that. It has to be the same day in, day out. And again, it's the ethos, if you will. It's the leadership. But to know that we live in the greatest country, in the greatest state the world's ever seen, okay? We set the standard here. Now, that was a multifarious question. I don't know much about real estate law. Okay. And what was touched on earlier uh, about the statute of limitations and so forth, judges get dozens and dozens of complaints every year to the Judicial Conduct Commission from uh, people who have been sent to prison, who have been convicted. Okay. And it's just nuisance over and over again uh, to complain. The same thing with prosecutors. So what is that line between prosecutors having to seek the truth? That's our mission. If you look at everything, it's our mission is to seek justice, to seek justice, not convictions, to seek justice and to protect. And you have to have the trust and confidence of the community in order for there to be order. You need cooperating witnesses and so forth. I know I'm jumping all over the place, but there's so many dynamics that are involved. We mentioned law enforcement. We have training with law enforcement over and over again. Disclosure is everything. Thorough investigation is everything. When you file, you know, through our process of vetting it and so forth, the probable cause but again, it's the rule of law. Now, I don't know whether I've answered the gentleman's question or not. Counsel? <laughs> we can go on to another question. Uh, last legislative session, there was a bill that um, up in the House that would have required 
um, and in, it would have created an innocence commission to investigate the um, exonerations of people who were wrongfully convicted and publish those, uh, the reasons for those convictions in the public sphere, um, a way to sort of increase transparency around the issue. And that bill did not pass. Um, do you think something like that is a measure that would sort of bring the issue to the attention of the public? And the fact that it didn't pass, does that say something about the way that Texas conceives its criminal justice system currently? You know, I think uh, um, what's getting lost in this, this conversation is Texas is actually leading the nation on this issue. Um, our compensation statute is, I think, the highest in the country. And I was surprised I had the opportunity to go um, and testify before Congress. And there was an exoneree uh, from a northern state. And uh, before this individual could get compensated, it had to go uh, to the legislature for them to vote on it, which was really surprising to me. And um, if you look at um, uh, our 2001 statute, which allows for DNA testing, te Texas is actually leading the way. Um, and um, I know that um, we get a bad rap throughout the, throughout the country. Um, but in reality, we are leading the way on this issue. Um, the fact that we have conviction integrity units in offices. You have one in Houston. You have one in Dallas, the two largest uh, metroplexes in the state. Um, the fact that we've had more exonerations uh, in this state, save for one. Um, Illinois, I think they had more. Um, but we are leading the way, and so I don't want folks to get lost on the issue that we are addressing the issue. Um, um, and, and I know this is very sensitive, and it's a political hot button, and we want a lot of folks want to jump on that one side uh, to condemn all prosecutors. But in reality, if we do that, then we'll make the same mistake which got us here in the first place. Can I follow up on, on Craig's answer, too? In, in your larger counties, such as Harris County and Dallas County, uh, these prosecutors have the funding and the resources to establish these post-conviction integrity units within their own offices that have been very effective in uh, uh, identifying potential problem convictions. But the question uh, then that is asked, what do you do in smaller counties that have uh, lesser uh, resources where we're struggling just to prosecute the active cases that we have now and don't have the resources to go back and investigate potential claims of wrongful conviction. And one of the things our association has done just within the last year is reached out to the Texas Department of Public Safety and asked them to cooperate with us in devoting resources uh, for those counties that need help in investigating claims of wrongful conviction uh, to assist us. And the Texas Rangers Division has been assigned on request from local DAs to come in and do an independent or objective evaluation of potential problem case, cases to identify instances where there may have been a bad, a bad outcome or result. So it's something we're trying to be proactive about right now. Thank you. Um, my question is what efforts, if any, have been made to educate officers about the unre unreliability of eyewitnesses' testimony and issues with lineups? Well, in Dallas County, in uh, double blind, you know, um, a study was done. Um, double blind system is basically um, the way to go, and I won't go into the details of that. Um, because of the exonerations, and it was somewhat, you know, when we start exonerating folks, uh, we created somewhat of a laboratory, and we got to see all the mistakes, and and that gave us the opportunity to go out to the different police departments to basically advise them on, on what may be a better way to investigate their cases. And one of the the major issue, and if you look at all exonerations, most of them are because of eyewitness identification. 
Um, and um, we've learned from that. And we know that the system that we used before was flawed. And fortunately, we um, have convinced uh, the agencies in, in our county to go to a different, uh, a different uh, way of identifying individuals that may commit crimes. Can I respond? Ma'am, as of September 1st of this year, uh, pursuant to a statute passed by the legislature last session, every law enforcement agency uh, in Texas is now required to have a policy uh, on eyewitness identification that is either going to be modeled after a uh, model policy that was established by Sam Houston State University and their College of Criminal Justice or something reasonably close uh, there too. So there's going to be a lot of activity probably over the next year or so where those policies are being implemented, officers are trained and, and so on. So we'll, we'll be able to see in real time how that develops. My understanding too is that the Innocence Project of Texas is um, gathering right now information from all the police agencies across the state to see exactly what policies they have adopted um, so they can get a, a good sense of whether or not those uh, law those laws are actually being implemented across the state. Hi folks. I was wondering um, as people who have made your careers doing this, if you could speak to some of the pressures both internal and external that would lead a prosecutor to blatantly disregard the evidence and push a case you know, through. If you could shed some light into what those pressures are. Mr. Watkins, I know you and I have talked about tunnel vision before and how that can sometimes be a problem. And I think that was even something that was in the County and District Attorney's Association's report. You know, what do you do about And it actually starts before it gets to the prosecutor. You know, the investigative side of it, you know, they key in on one person. And when you go through the process, and, and you, you start out with this one person with the with the investigation with the police department, and then you know there may be some um, some forensics that, that may go along with that, and the tunnel vision is still there and keyed in on that person, and then we get this file dropped on our desk, and we have to go prosecute it. And so at that point, we trust all those agencies that came before us uh, to basically have the information for the prosecution, um, and so therein lies. Um, the issues that we're dealing with. And, and a lot of times, like when we talk about eyewitness identification, flawed science techniques, which we found out, um, a lot of times we got down this road, we pursued a prosecution when we shouldn't have. And it's less about misconduct, it's less about error from the prosecutor's standpoint, it's more about the system, which um, 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 because of you know, the time and the science, we didn't know. Now we do. And so therein lies the issue that we, we deal with. We know a lot more than we did 10 years ago. And so because of that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning uh, of the system and try to fix it so when we do get that file dropped on our desk, we have confidence uh, in it and we can pursue a legitimate prosecution. I believe your question was pressures that lead someone to blatantly disregard. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really going with Mr. Graves' case here. I mean, if you know anything about it, you know that there were definitely things that were disregarded. Um, so yeah, I mean, what, when it does get to the point where it's a file on your desk, and you want somebody and you're not to sure. describe what those pressures or, are? Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm here to tell you one thing, okay? There's, one, there's only one thing in this world that no one can give you and no one can take away from you, but you can throw it away, and that's your honor. So there is no pressure in the world that would justify someone blatantly disregarding their duty. What we have is a sacred duty, and it's an honor to sorrow. So, if 
you do the right thing, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? That you lose an election? In the old days, they used to literally cut our heads off. Can I, can I follow up on that just briefly? Um, Mr. Graves' case is a tragic result, and there's, there's really not of an ex, much of an explanation that justifies what happened in that case. But I'd like to think that most prosecutors don't blatantly disregard the evidence. I think what you run into in this issue of tunnel vision or what they call cognitive bias or confirmation bias is an inability to recognize potentially exculpatory information. And that is a very natural human condition that, that exists both in academia, in research, uh, and even in, in criminal prosecutions, where at some point in that prosecution, the prosecutor becomes very convinced that this is what the facts of that case is. And, and there's a natural tendency to look for information that supports that hypothesis that you believe in, and just as natural of a tendency to discount potentially exculpatory uh, information or information that is adverse to that hypothesis. And one thing that we've recognized as an association is the need to increase awareness of that condition, increase research into that condition, and train prosecutors to be aware of and on guard for falling in into that type of trap. So, yeah, that's a very active discussion that's going on right now in our profession. I don't know that we've solved all the world's problems, but you've at least got the discussion going. So thank you all so much for coming to this discussion today. Thank you to our guests so much for being here.